So I'm reading James chapter 2. Uh, you can find that on page 854 of the Pew Bibles. James chapter 2. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it is not if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish man, do, do what... Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As a body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Well, how about we pray? Uh, gracious Father, thanks again for uh, bringing us together as you have today. Thanks again that we can sit under your word and, uh, and really uh, contemplate it and uh, by your spirit have our thinking and our hearts changed. We do pray for that. We pray, Father God, that we would not walk out of here the same people that 
uh, we were when we walked in, that there would be changes uh, in our minds and in our hearts uh, through your word. We pray for the children as well, Lord God. Father, we love them so much. They're so precious. And we pray that um, as they're being taught your word this morning, that uh, you would really be deeply instilling in them the great truths of the gospel and a heart affection for you, that there would be a, a very great harvest in the years to come, a harvest of faith. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> One of the great godly men of the past who God used to do wonderful things for the sake of the gospel was Martin Luther. It's actually, it'll be uh, in just over two years from now, we'll, we will celebrate the 500th anniversary of the day that Martin Luther took what was called the 95 Theses, whole list of complaints against the church, and he <clears throat> nailed them to the door on the, uh, on the church at uh, Castle in Wittenberg in <coughs> Germany. And uh, that was like posting something on the internet. Uh, it, uh, the ideas started to spread and uh, it really sparked the beginning of um, the Reformation, which brought about uh, a great change in a lot of uh, conversions uh, throughout Europe. Um, Martin Luther lived in a time when, for over the centuries, <clears throat> the church had uh, greatly sinned because the church had allowed the gospel to be, uh, to be clouded uh, by a great fog of ceremonies and rituals. The church had allowed the gospel to be, uh, to be buried under a great weight of, of wealth and of political power and prestige. And so by the time of the 16th century, with the exception of some small uh, groups of people who had actually been uh, able to read the Bible and had discovered the gospel, uh, by that time, the gospel was not being preached by the institutional church. How about that? Imagine going to church and actually not hearing the gospel um, being taught. One of the reasons for that is that, um, well, the, the, they actually did have another message and that message was that um, if you want to get saved, uh, you need to depend on the church and you need to save yourself. You can get right with God, you can go to heaven uh, so long as you do certain things, certain good works, certain religious works, like being baptised, like going to church and like paying money to the church. How about that? Pay money to the church and you can buy your way out of purgatory. We can buy your family's uh, salvation for them to get out of purgatory as well. Dreadful, isn't it? Absolutely awful. And ordinary people just had to believe what the priests told them because the Bible wasn't available to the ordinary person. Isn't it great that we can actually own a Bible for ourselves? We can open it up any day at any time and read it for ourselves. We can come to church and we're encouraged to read the Bible. But at the time of Martin Luther, the, the, uh, the Bible was only available in one language and that was Latin. Guess how many people could read and understand Latin? Not a whole lot. Um, academics, intellectuals could, 
people of the priestly class could, but the ordinary person uh, could not read it. And so they just had to depend that what the church was telling them was actually what the Bible says, which which it was not. Martin Luther, however, could read the Bible because he was a scholar, he was a monk, he was a scholarly monk, and he could read the Bible in Latin. And as he did so, he, um, uh, especially as he read through and studied hard the book of Romans, the penny dropped for, uh, for Martin Luther. Um, Luther himself was a man who was <clears throat> very intense he was, and he was greatly burdened by the guilt of his sin um, and he became frustrated and even angry with God, very angry with God because as religious as he was, he was a monk, as religious as he was, all the rituals, all the ceremonies that he did, he felt no relief from the guilt of his sin until the penny dropped by reading through Romans and understanding what the the death of Christ on the cross really means, what Christ has really done, that Christ by his death has borne our guilt upon himself, paid the debt that we owed to God so that we can be forgiven. And God did a marvellous work amongst men such as Martin Luther and other educated men who could read the Latin version of the Bible. They learnt that the, there is a way that we can get to right with God. And it's got nothing to do with paying money to the church or rituals. It's got everything to do with trusting that Jesus, by his death on the cross, has paid the debt that we owed. Now, you and I, we take that for granted, don't we? But... Um, That's because of the work that God did through these men back then. Um, Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Uh, Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says it is by grace that you've been saved through faith and this is not from yourself, it is a gift of God, not by works. These guys had rediscovered the, the gospel. But one of the uh, things that Luther did was he saw that it was really important, therefore, to, to now translate the Bible into languages that people could understand. And he himself said about the work of translating the Bible into German. His idea was so that the, the, uh, the ordinary farm labourer could, could read the Bible, read God's word for himself. And as he put together his own Bible in German, he, he, he had a few problems with the book of James because uh, there was a, one particular verse that uh, he had real difficulty coming from where he was coming from, trying to do what he was trying to do. He had real difficulty with one, with one particular verse in the book of James and it was read to us earlier on actually. Can I get you to have a look at it? It's uh, in James 2, and it's James 2, verse 24. Have a look at this, where James says, everyone got that? Nearly there? Great. James says, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. You see that? Uh, A person is justified by what he does. A person is not justified 
by faith alone. See the problem? The great slogan of the Reformation was Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone. And James appears to be saying that our justification, our getting right with God, is actually not by faith alone. We get right with God by what we do. See the problem? How is a person justified? James says, by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, Luther was very passionate to tell people the good news that it is by faith alone, that it's not by what we do, and so therefore he had some trouble coming to terms with this particular verse. So why does James say this? That's our question uh, today. Um, What does he mean? And the way we're going to work that through is by looking more closely, of course, at the passage itself in uh, James 2. Last week, if you were here, you'll remember that we learnt the, the big message from chapter 1 was that um, we, we must not be just hearers of God's word. We also need to be doers of God's word. Now, don't be like the person who goes and looks themselves in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what they, they look like. You know? that's, that's useless. Well, James fleshes that out more so here in chapter 2 uh, as he speaks about the way that the our faith should change our relationships. How does the gospel impact upon our relationships? And he talks about, he, he, we can break chapter 2 up into two sections. Because first of all, in verses 1 through to 13, James tells us that the gospel changes the way that we view other people, and particularly people Uh, in church suppose this and James himself gives this illustration uh, in verses 1 through to 4 but suppose in in verse 2 that you're on the door you're on the west you're on the welcoming uh, roster uh, for church and it's your turn on a particular Sunday Sunday morning and uh, you're standing at the door there, you've got your bulletins and you're welcoming people as they walk in, handing out the bulletins. Uh, thanks to Catherine and the Dowling family for doing that for us today. And, uh, and you see them coming up the stairs. It looks like a young family. It uh, looks like mum and dad and uh, three children. They look like pretty nice kids. And uh, as you uh, greet them, uh, <clears throat> to your delight, they tell you that... Um, we're not on holidays. We've actually just moved to Port Macquarie. If you're on holidays, lovely to have you with us. Uh, but they say, we've just moved to Port Macquarie uh, to take up a, a particular pr- position, a professional position in the town, which you deduce pays pretty well. And uh, they tell you, we're, we're, um, we're checking out a few churches. We want to find a church home. And uh, we've been recommended uh, to this church. It's on top of our list. And you say, great. It is wonderful to have you. Um, Stay around after the service and I'll introduce you to a few people. And you make sure that they find their way to a good seat, uh, a good pew. Which, by the way, is how we should welcome... uh, people who come through our doors on a Sunday. Uh, If you're on the welcoming uh, roster, if you're on the door, you're the first face that people see 
and uh, uh, we need to be warm and welcoming. We all need to be warm and welcoming to everyone who comes to church. Notice the word everyone. Everyone who comes to church. Because back to that scenario, uh, you've just welcomed this couple in, they've found a nice seat. But then the next person through the door is, well, a bit different. Uh, You've never seen this man before. He's alone. And as he gets a bit closer by his look and by, well, you kind of think, I don't think this guy's had a wash for a while. Uh, You don't know if he loves Jesus or not. He may love Jesus. You don't know. But he does look like he's got a few problems. So you offer him a seat where he isn't so noticeable and you hope that he doesn't hang around too long after the service or if he does that other people talk to him and you don't have to talk to him. What have you just done? In verse 4, James says, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Discriminated and judged. Now, as I was working on this, I, I, I thought, what, what does it mean to become a judge with an evil thought uh, in this context? And it seems to me that it's, it's like this. Uh, it is very easy for us to make judgments about people based on outward appearance, isn't it? It's is a very easy thing for us to do. Uh, to judge the poor person. How might we judge a poor person? Well, we might think to ourselves, um, you know, maybe it's this person's fault that they're poor. I mean, this person looks like they've probably made some really bad decisions in life. Uh, or maybe this guy's just lazy should get off his, you know, and go and get himself a job. And so we judge the person that it's somehow their fault that they're poor. Um, But maybe it's not their fault. Uh, A man visited church here on Sunday uh, a few months ago and uh, he was poor. He was very poor. Uh, He needed food. He was hungry. He was really hungry. And uh, so after other, most of us had, had left, uh, he and I walked down to the, the supermarket together to get a bundle of groceries so that he could, he could eat for the rest of the week. And a, as we were doing so, he, he opened up to me and it was with tears that uh, he told me his story. Um, he told me what had happened to him. He told me what had, life had been like for him since the day that he was born. And I can tell you, without going into the details, his poverty was not his fault. It was not his fault. But even if his poverty was his fault, should that change our, our attitude? Um, there are two key words in these verses. Uh, one of those is the word judgment, and the other one is the word mercy. See, we can be judges of people, but guess what? There is another judge. Uh, The Lord is the judge. And uh, we need to think about the issue of judgment. Does the poor person deserve to be included in God's kingdom? Well, the answer is no. They don't deserve it. The question, does the rich person deserve to be in God's kingdom? Answer, 
Same answer. No. Uh, think about it more personally. Do you deserve to be in God's kingdom? Do I deserve? No. None of us deserves to be included. None of us. Uh, the fact is that um, what, what the only thing which any of us deserve is God's judgment. But down in verse 13, James reminds us of something which triumphs over judgment, and that is mercy. God's mercy triumphs over judgment. We have a merciful God who forgives, and he forgives at the cost of his own son, Jesus. In fact, um, in verses 5 through to 7, James reminds us uh, that God actually chooses poor people to be rich in faith. And we were reminded of that last week from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that uh, Paul, speaking to the Corinthian congregation, said, look, not many of you are great, not many of you are wise, not many of you are... But God chooses the weak and the, and the lowly and the poor to actually um, demonstrate that salvation is not about how good we are, it's about how good he is. It's not about how strong we are, it's about how strong God is. So God actually chooses poor people to be rich in faith. And so how therefore could we actually insult a poor person? How could we, how could we dare to insult someone who God has actually chosen? Um, the other thing that James reminds us is that there's actually rich, and he's speaking to the people to whom he was writing, that there were actually rich people who were exploiting the Christians. There were rich people who were dragging Christian people into court to squeeze every last bit out of them. And there were rich people who were, who were blaspheming the name of the one whom we love. And so the issue there is that wealth is no reason to value someone. It's, it's the wrong basis to value a person. <clears throat> then in James, in verse 8, uh, James raises that favourite Old Testament law, love your neighbour as yourself. Well, you know, when we were doing Exodus and we particularly looked at the Ten Commandments, we saw that the, how it was that the Ten Commandments could be summed up in the two laws to, to love God and to love your neighbour. Um, Everything else hangs on those, uh, these two commands, don't they? To love God and to love your neighbour as yourself. Well, think about yourself. How would you feel <clears throat> if you were treated as a second-class citizen in church um, because of, well, you know, they didn't think that you were a particularly good financial asset? How would you feel? Or you weren't the right demographic. Uh, you're, not, you, you're not actually <clears throat> part of the people group that they were targeting. Uh, you're not young enough. Uh, you're not attractive enough. You don't have the right job. Uh, you don't fit into the boutique image that... How would you feel? Love your neighbour as yourself. If we think about how we would feel in that situation, that helps us to to understand how someone else might feel if we were to treat them as a second-class person uh, as they've come into church or part of our community. 
In verse, in verse 10, James says, if you break this law about loving your neighbour as yourself, then you might as well break the lot. Uh, you know, uh, that's the nature of um, sin, isn't it? Uh, if you break one law, then you are actually a sinner. You're offside with God. A friend of mine is a pastor of a large church in Sydney, which is um, a somewhat youthful uh, church and he spoke about um, uh, a period one year when there was an older man who uh, started coming along on Sundays uh, who was not the same as the, the typical demographic of the church and he looked like he had a few problems. Uh, my friend, um, this man started coming one week and he came back over every week after that for a number of months and my friend confessed uh, that he was concerned you know who is this man um, why is he coming to church uh, what's his what's his story what's he up to why is he here now in one sense he was thinking as a responsible pastor but um, in his heart he confessed that he had actually been quite judgmental about this man just based on who he was, you know, what he looked like. And so one Sunday, he, he actually went and spoke to the man uh, who told him with real emotion in his voice that his life had changed. He said, I... Over these weeks and months, as I've been coming along to church, I've been sitting there... I've been listening to the sermons and he spoke about how he'd actually been listening to the gospel, that uh, he had put his faith in Christ, that he'd, he now believed that he knew God as his heavenly father. He'd been converted. And the question, well, why was he coming to church in the first place? Well, guess what? Because he was actually seeking after God. <laughs> That's why he was coming to church. How about that? Someone coming to church because they're seeking after... Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise that that should happen. And uh, my friend uh, shared this story as an illustration of how he had been judgmental. He had judged this man on the outside and uh, had not viewed him as God views him. A sinner in need of salvation, as we all are in need. So that's the first part of chapter 2. Then in verses 14 to 26, James wants to flesh out how the gospel changes uh, not just our attitudes towards one another, but the way that we love other people. Now, uh, I love Peanuts cartoons. Charlie Brown, Snoopy, <clears throat> Linus and all that sort of thing. And one of my favourite ones is this one here on the screen. Uh, if you're listening on the, um, on the internet, you won't be able to see this. So, uh, and we don't quite get the, um, the full captions there. Uh, but, so let me read to you. There's Charlie Brown and, uh, and, and Linus. And there's Snoopy. And what's the weather like, folks? It's, it's snowing. And uh, Snoopy there is freezing cold and... Uh, Charlie Brown points out to Linus and says, uh, Snoopy looks rather cold, doesn't he? 
And uh, then um, uh, they speak to one another and they said, well, maybe we should go and chat with uh, Snoopy and encourage him. And so they go and have a chat with Snoopy and there's uh, Charlie Brown and says, be of good cheer, Snoopy. And Linus says, yes, be of good cheer. And what do they do? They walk off. And there's Snoopy. Not only is he still cold, but now he's also very confused. He's thinking, what was all of that about? What was all of that about? You know, um, uh, in verses 14 through to 17, James says that if we really appreciate uh, how God has loved us, then we will also show our appreciation by our acts of love towards other people. Uh, one of the wonderful things about being part of this, this church family is the way that we can care for each other in practical needs. Uh, and you know, uh, you might have seen it happening when you know, money or groceries are given to someone in the church who is in genuine need or you know, when um, those who are sick <clears throat> are visited. Uh, we've got people who are in the... Um, we're in pe we've got people in nursing homes and I visited a couple in a nursing home a couple of days ago and I was just mentioning to some people at Morning Tea earlier on that these people, you know, we need to visit them more and at least three people told me, I, I visit them. You know, yeah, I go out there once a month. Another person says, I go out there once every so often. Another person says, I know someone else who goes and visits them. It's great to see that sort of thing happening. Um, it's when the, you know, the, 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 uh, the food is delivered to the, to the new mum in the congregation or uh, the family that's struggling in different ways. We, we do these things because we want to share the love which God has given to us. But if I claim to have faith and I'm aware of a need and all things considered I know that I am able to help, but I say, no, nah, not going to do that. What sort of faith is that? Here's a new term for that kind of faith, Charlie Brown faith. <laughs> right? It says it all, doesn't it? It's in the head, but you know, it's not really translating through the, to the heart as much as it should. Um, it's words without action. Now, you know, we're all going to stumble and fall. Uh, I know that there's, things, there's times when I've just not lived up to that, I need to confess that and I need to uh, seek God's uh, help in changing. But that's what James is trying to do. That's what this is all about. It's helping us to be people who have faith uh, which is accompanied by, guess what? Works. Good works. Take a look at verse 14, uh, what James says about that. He says, What good is it, my brothers? If a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? What do you think the answer is? Well, you know, if that's the general approach, uh, as I said, we're all going to we're going to stumble from time to time. But you know, it's useless, it's useless faith. It, it it's faith that just doesn't ring true. And James backs up what he's saying with a couple of examples from the Old Testament. Um, like Abraham uh, in verse 23. I mean, um, God had made some pretty big promises to Abraham and one of those big promises was that, through he, that he would have a son 
and that through his son would develop a great nation. Uh, but then God commanded Abraham to go and offer up Isaac uh, at an altar to sacrifice him. Now, there's a test of faith, isn't there? Uh, Abraham believed God, but the question is, would his belief be accompanied by obedience? And guess what? The answer to that was yes, it was. Now, God is not into child sacrifices, and as you know, Isaac was spared, but that was a test of faith, wasn't it? Also a test which points us to God's own love in sacrificing his own son for us. So in verse 22, James says that Abraham's faith and his actions, they were interlocked. They were working together and by his faith he was made complete by what he did. Right? His faith was actually demonstrated to be true by his actions. Verse 25, it was the same deal with Rahab. She was a Gentile, she lived in Jericho, um, Hebrew spies had been sent to, to suss out the town before they uh, invaded. And Rahab, we're told, she believed in the God of Israel. She believed that he was the true God. And so she actually risked her own life and hid the spies in her place when word got out that there were some Hebrew spies in town. Faith and actions hand in hand. That's James's point. It's a very simple point that he's making. Gospel faith must be a living faith. So with all of that in mind, look back again at verse 24, where he says, You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Martin Luther struggled with that verse. But it's simply saying that true faith in the gospel is always going to impact the way that we view other people and the way that we treat other people. God has accepted us. God has served us. So we should want to accept and serve others. In the early days of the Christian church, so I'm talking in the back end of the first century and second century time when we're still a slave society one of the really like socially radical things that happened was churches because in churches that people of all different social strata were all just mixing together as as equals and uh it was some of these the christian slave owners the masters deliberately went out of their way in church to make sure that when they were celebrating the Lord's Supper, and they didn't just have a tiny bit of bread and a little, you know, bit of, it was a, more of a meal, that they actually served, the masters served the slaves. And it was an important thing to do because they were saying that actually our social status we kind of leave that at the door uh, because we're actually, we're all one in Christ Jesus. And it was a, a way that they could demonstrate that that was the case. Very powerful statement that rich or poor, we're actually all just forgiven sinners. That's who we are. And so we serve one another. So in our church gatherings, 
it's worthwhile us doing some thinking about this sort of thing. Um, it's worth our while thinking about the different types of people uh, because, you know, the, there is a t tendency, it's very natural that in church we tend to gravitate towards people who are more like ourselves and that's just a sociological kind of thing, I understand that. Uh, but sometimes it's really good to actually think, well, who's a person in church that I don't normally talk to? Because, you know, they are a bit different to me. Maybe they're much older or much younger than myself or whatever. Um, I don't really know that person uh, because they're different. Well, we can actually make an effort to, um, to change that and to actually uh, make sure we go and talk to someone who we don't know uh, get to know them, uh, get to love them. So it's good to think, uh, think that through, but don't just think it through, um, do it as well. Good thing to do. Uh, or go and sit next to someone in church who you've never sat next to before during a service. I think that's a helpful thing for us to do. Um, and think about needs. Uh, what are the needs of others in the church? You know, it's so easy for us to just think about what, our, what are our own needs. But um, if we're all only thinking about what are our own needs, then no one's needs are going to be met. Uh, so let's think about who's the person in the church who needs a visit? Um, what about, is there someone who would actually appreciate getting a lift to church? Um, is there someone who's not here today uh, maybe they're sick, you know, would it be good to give them a call and just see how they're going? Or, or an invitation to a meal, that's a great thing to do. Or material help, think about those things and don't just think about them, also do them. Uh, that's the point of James chapter 2. One of the other great theologians around the time of Martin Luther was the French theologian John Calvin. Uh, Calvin was a... Uh, clear gospel man and he also had a knack for explaining things particularly well. He found the solution to Luther's problem with verse 24 when, when Calvin said, we are justified by faith alone, but guess what? The faith which justifies it's never alone. Uh, it is always accompanied by good deeds. So let's not just be hearers of the word, let's be doers. Shall we pray about this? Gracious Father, we want to thank you for the challenge that uh, James lays before us. And we confess that we have not always uh, valued each other and others in the way that you value us. Father, we confess that sometimes that there may have been times when we've been a little bit judgmental, that we've made assessments of people from outward observances and we've not thought about the heart and we've not thought about how gracious you've been to us. So we pray, Father God, that you would help us to repent of this and help us to uh, uh, see people in the same way that you do. Father, we um, think of the times when we've had the opportunity to serve someone and it's been within our capacity to do so.
but we've been lazy or we've just been um, selfish. Father, we pray that um, you would forgive us of that and that you would help us to change. Father, we, we want to thank you that we have seen a lot of change uh, in the lives of many people in our church here. Help us to continue to change. Help us to continue to be people who view people as you do and who serve as you do. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.